That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So this is the Meat for Tea cast. You might always start like that. Who knows? Hello and welcome. Hello, welcome back to the Meat for Tea cast. We're in season five. Episode 13. Lucky number 13. Yeah, super nice. I'm Mark Allen Miller, by the way. I'm Elizabeth McDuffie, and we are launching into the second in our series of conversations with our Pushcart Award nominees. Mm-hmm. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Jane Mushinets. She'll read the poem for which she was nominated, Point of No Inflection. And she's the author of a couple of books. All the bad girls wear Russian accents. (laughs) And she'll be talking about the newer ones that are out, too. She's awesome. You will delight in her conversation. And she shares even with us her first poem that she wrote when she was four. And she reads it in what used to be her native tongue of Russian and in English. So that's a treat. So on with a little housekeeping. We are running a special in our spring store. Free shipping on all your orders. And yeah, it's a free shipping on anything from t-shirts to mugs to socks, tote bags, hoodies, beach towels, pint glasses, aprons. Yes. And the promo code to get you free shipping on all that wonderful stuff. And there is a lot of it is Boba, which is also the theme of our upcoming 18th anniversary issue. 18 years. 18 years. More on that soon. But back to housekeeping, all the best ways to support us can be found right on our website at meatfortea.com, M-E-A-T-F-O-R-T-E-A. There, of course, you will see our spring store. Links to this podcast good pods and you can figure out ways to subscribe to the magazine which is one of the absolute best ways to support us is get yourself a subscription definitely definitely get your loved one subscription you will also see ways to buy individual issues in either print or pdf form and we have a lot of books for sale most recently we have a fantastic collaboration Mm-hmm. between Scott Ferry and Daniel McGinn called Fill Me With Birds. It's fantastic. It is. So also another great way to support us is to leave a review in, with writing five stars, please. You can do it at Good Pods and then just simply copy and paste it over to Apple Podcasts or any other podcasting application you might use that allows reviews. And that's a fantastic way to keep keep us afloat. Send a voice memo with you reading your review for us to play on a podcast. We haven't had one of those in a while, and we they're do fun. love putting your voices on the podcast. Yeah, they're really fun. So please, please consider doing that as well. And also you can find just really quickly links to our Patreon page and also ways to donate and get a tax break from your donation. All at meetfortea.com. Coming up March 9th, we're doing our next Cirque at the Divine Theater in Holyoke for the release of the Boba issue. It's going to be really good. Yes, it's Le Cirque de Mer Avela. Translation is the Circus of the Bicycling Mothers. <laughs> and the bands are Le Devalure 
and Mother Sasha. There's art exhibit by brilliant cartoonist Casey Green. Films of Luke Yeager, which are stunning. And as always, spoken word. So another jam-packed multimedia gala at the Divine Theater for the 18th anniversary of Meet for Tea. The Boba issue will also be available at a special event price mm-hmm. that night, as will a number of our books. Doors are seven. Back issues. Yep, doors are at seven. We'll see you there. We'll see you there. Ten dollars to get in. Well, does that about wrap that up? Should we get to your conversation with Jane? I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. All right, here's Elizabeth and Jane. So let me officially welcome you. I am honored and excited to have joining me one of our Pushcart nominees for 2023, poet Jane Mushinitz. Did I do that right? You did it perfectly. Thank you so much for having me and the honor is mine. Oh, no, I'm thrilled in preparation for this. Actually, did a little search and turned Mm -hmm. up a bunch of podcasts that you'd been on, a couple of them. And listened. One was the written scene. Yes, with Adam. That was fantastic. That was really great. Listening. Other one was is it the poetry salon cast? Yeah, yeah, with Tish. And that was really a fun one too. I think I did it. That was the humor one, right? Or was that a different one? No, <laughs> that wasn't it. I, she had me on at a reading where we did a humor after the podcast. But I oh, love so both cool. of those. It was really fun. Uh, and Adams in particular, I know you lived in San Diego at one time. His podcast is specific to San Diego written writing, writers of all kinds, including poets. And it's really fun and fascinating because you can bump into these people. <laughs> and I know a lot of them. So that was really cool. That's very cool. Yeah, I lived in San Diego a long time ago. On um, Curlew Street, actually, in Hillcrest. Oh, I live in University Heights. So we, we're neighbors just a couple of oh my years God. away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some 30 years away. <laughs> I, I Time flies. Yeah. yeah, I was there in the 80s. I was, I was there when Hillcrest was largely... Um, comprised of broke punk rockers and artists that was the uptown neighborhood that they resided in and of course those kind of neighborhoods very quickly become fashionable yes it still has a little grit to it i have to say it hasn't lost its mojo completely but it, it has cleaned up its act a lot yeah yeah i sort of got this there goes the neighborhood feeling when, <laughs> oh, it must have been 1988. I'm very old, you know. Um, you don't look it. <laughs> 61. Oh, my goodness. That's not yeah. very old. That's not very old. You can't say that. No, it's not like aged and infirm quite. But um, there is there is a bookstore, the Globe Bookstore, and, and yeah, bookstore and antique shop. and. That shut down and was replaced by 7-Eleven. There's just some other kind of dark signs. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. there, there 
here goes this cool little punk rock neighborhood. Yeah. That's what happens. It's the the way it goes. Those little <laughs> artists, broke artists enclaves are always deemed stylish because those broke artists know how to know how to do it in a stylish yeah. way. <laughs> and and actually there is a mural alley now that is now quite the scene, but it started out with just people illegally, you know, drawing on walls, but now it's a mural alley and there's a market and everyone wants to go there. It's sanctioned. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fun. Very cool. Yeah. No, that's super fun. No, I did love San Diego when I was there. So it was fun. It is fun to be on podcasts and Tresha's uh, salon cast is a really cool one too. So I'm excited to be here for the meet for tea cast. Yeah. I'm thrilled to have you. And I realized I need to get my hands on a copy of your book. I All think that can be arranged. Accents. Yeah, I need I need to have, I, I feel remiss in not having already devoured the whole thing in preparation for this. But I have read a few of your poems because I've been lucky to have them come in as submissions. Yes. And you were there for the virtual book launch too. So you got to hear some of those. That was really fun. That was so fun. It was. That was so much fun. And the theme was so great. Bad Girls of Poetry. Katie Manning helped me come up with it. And she kind of was the MC of the event. She's a phenomenal poet and a dear friend here in San Diego. She's amazing. She does a million things. Yeah, she and I are in touch. I, I, I have published her, I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. I think so in the recent one. Yeah, and I, I want to publish. I have some pieces of my own that I'd love to send to... Whale Road okay. Review. It's gorgeous. Please, please yeah. send. Well, here's the thing. Apparently, one should be stingy in what one posts to social media if one would like to later publish. Yeah, that's what yeah. I've understood. Yeah. There's the rub. I got all excited and shared a couple of pieces. And those are the ones that I would have sent. And I believe those count as previously published. I think it depends on how wide your reach is. I feel like your reach is pretty wide because you <laughs> you were in the community. You know a lot of people. I, but I, yeah, I'm actually getting to the point where I'm going to have to go through and call my Facebook friends because I think I'm like 40 people away from the limit. 5k limit yeah yeah no that's it gets it gets big pretty fast so you're a popular person so I think when you have a reach like that yes but you know what I've discovered and I really just came to this whole publishing world about two and a half years ago in 2020 the pandemic that's kind of when it yeah when, when it turned me around listening to the poetry salon cast you went yes about that so to me, I keep discovering all these new things which are kind of fascinating about the publishing industry, especially in poetry and how it works, which to everyone else, well, to people who have been in it for a while, it's like water, they're the fish, this is the pond in which they swim, it doesn't seem weird anymore. But I have found that there are places that uh, run contests for previously published work, especially thematic uh it pops up every once in a while. So it could be on the theme of, you know, a famous artist or gender issues or uh, uh, Oak uh, Footnote runs a historic poetry contest, which I just submitted to, and they accept previously published work. 
which I didn't know before because I thought, well, you know, if you've published it, if you didn't quite get it right the first time it was published, then you kind of have to then wait until you put it into a collection on your own if you want to get it out there again. But in fact, there are these little opportunities if you hunt around for them that may give your work second life. Yeah, life life off of Facebook because I only yes. shared to my poetry community because sometimes I regard something as a draft. It's funny, I obviously do write and actually do art and make music too, mm-hmm. but I don't spend a lot of time shopping my own stuff around because publishing everybody else's stuff keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> I heard, I heard you had 400 submissions recently to go through. I- that's a lot. It is a lot. It's a ton. There's there's usually a whole bunch of um, perfectly lovely ones enough to fill another whole issue. Mm-hmm. So I've been shortening my calls. Does Mead for Tea accept work that has been published on social media? Do you have? Yes. yes. Okay. Always have. As a matter of fact, that there's a lot of times where I've seen a piece that someone posted. I'm like, oh, wow, I really love that. Send that on over to meet for tea if you want to give it a you know a, a wider audience new covers yeah, yeah. that's great and also yeah no, well I feel a little bit like you know cue sad trombone if posting <laughs> your piece on social media is the publishing life that it gets yes period. yeah I do think there are publications that will specify that publishing yeah, I, something, if it's under five, a run of under 500, then you can submit it to them. Mm. So if I only post to threads <laughs> where my following is significantly smaller, I'm finding a loophole. I think so. And also, even if you publish it on Facebook, you know, the algorithm won't expose it to all of your followers. It was only like 5% of them will get to see it in the first place. So well, that's I think true. you could do and- that math fairly. Yeah. Thanks for the loopholes. I see that. That's why I'm, that's the real reason you're here. Yeah. That's what we're here for. (laughs) Just picking your brain for loopholes. Well, to me, and and again, like so much of this is such a discovery of what, this is how it works. How do I figure this out? There is uh, a lot more like every, and you, you can only know what's in front of you. It's sort of like climbing a mountain, or uh-huh. walking down a path, you can you only get up see that next level. Mm-hmm. You see a little more. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And you know, meat for tea is just getting ready to turn eighteen years old. Well, happy early so. birthday! Almost legal. Yeah, it's time for it to earn some more money. It's like, come on, kid, it's time <laughs> to pay some bills. You're That's eighteen right. now. You can do it. You can earn some money, little arts and literary journal. Yay. Yeah, so you'd, you'd feel like I, I knew all, I'd know all the ins and outs, but I'm usually on the other side of the desk. Mm-hmm. Does that give you? I feel like that would give you an inside view of what an editor would want. Yeah, I suppose it does, but it also g- gives me um, a lot less time to devote to the Fair. project of yeah. getting my stuff out. And I actually am more committed to providing this place for emerging poets. To an artist to have their work. Thank you for that. And a larger audience. Yeah, it's important to me. I think I think those things need to happen, and then I get to meet all you wonderful people. And the, the most fun thing about having a new guest on the podcast too, when I'm doing my homework and 
listening around to other podcasts where they may have appeared, I get to discover all these cool new podcasts too. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. And you were one of the first people to publish me, which was really exciting and meaningful. And wow, I have this little stack next to my desk of my public first publications, just like, and it was, you know, just one thing. And now it's like a little stack that's legit and you guys are a part of it. I'm so excited by that. It was so exciting to open it and to read it. And then the other thing that I loved is because I did not, people were asking me when I started saying I was submitting my poetry and work and getting published, they asked, oh, what journals should I read? And I really didn't know what to say because the landscape was so new to me. And I didn't, I was myself figuring that out. I didn't want to say Uh something that everybody knows, right? I wanted... To give them something that like an inside person would suggest. Right. Meet for tea. Paris review. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, no, no, I want like stuff and also stuff. So meet for tea filled that niche beautifully because not only was I excited to be published, but I absolutely loved everyone who was published in the piece and uh, in it, along with my piece. And so that was really fun because often you get published and you're not always so repeatedly thrilled with the work of the magazine and um, I don't say often, but sometimes that happens and you're like, Oh, okay. You know, I don't know how I made it in, you know, but in this one, that was like place of pride. Everyone's writing was amazing. Thanks so much. I'm just really lucky to have somehow gotten on the radar of so many really gifted writers just so many. And I don't even really have um, much of a slush pile anymore, which is why I have such a backlog of submissions that I need to find homes for. It's like everybody is very talented and very good. And there's just that's a fantastic. Lot of it. It, yeah. it, it is fantastic. <laughs> is it? But it's also like, oh my God, I don't want to let these pieces languish. And there's so many of them. But mm. I am. I am Grateful. It, it's it's certainly better than if it were the opposite. So when I was listening to the Poetry Salon cast, their ears mm-hmm. are going to be burning by the end of this. <laughs> um, am I correct? You you started getting serious about your poetry and shopping it around when you also had a little baby? Well, no. Actually, I started getting serious. Of, I, I didn't have a little baby by that time. I did have two babies. And they were sort of not so little anymore. But in 2020, we were at home. Uh-huh. Oh, and, yeah. and I had, my, you know, I, I loved writing and all in high school and school. My first poem I wrote when I was four. I know. I heard that mm-hmm. on the written scene. I love that so much. And I love the poem. Thank you. Actually, do you want to share it here? Yes. Since you just introduced it so gracefully. I will. Dождик, дождик полевой, обливается водой. The poem is in Russian. That's my native tongue. And it basically means, um, oh, I forgot the, the nice translation I made for him, but little rain upon the flowers, waters feels as it showers. It rhymes in delightful. Russian. So that's that's yes. so delightful. And thank you for reading it in Russian. I love that. <laughs> my pleasure. Like feel free to read to throw the Russian in yes oh oh yeah I I love that so I had always thought it would be a part of me but I also understood that writing was not a career 
or it was a very difficult career. And since my parents sacrificed so much and we escaped with almost nothing to this country and we're so lucky to be given this chance as refugees to start over from Ukraine, uh, I really needed to make good. I needed to have like a solid career and be able to provide for myself and my family. Yeah. So, you know, writing and I knew I didn't want to be a teacher or a professor, which would have allowed me to stay with writing in that capacity. So that wasn't it. I went on and I had a different career, which was writing adjacent. It was marketing and public communications business. I got an MBA and, um, that was really great. And I had always said to myself, oh, you know, I'll write as a hobby, which is what they tell you, right? Oh, it's a nice hobby, your artistic endeavors, but it's not a real career. Uh, and what I realized was there was just no time for it as a hobby there, because when you don't think it's important or when you agree with the world that tells you that it's not important, then it's hard to make space for it, especially when you become a parent and you're trying to work and juggle and oh my God. life happens. And it was the, it was 2020 and we were at home. And I think a lot of people were reckoning in terms of, you know, where are we going? What are we focusing on? And I was, I just realized that I had not written anything for years, for years. And I still thought of myself in my heart as a writer. And so that was like this moment of reckoning me like, okay, well, I'm no longer 16, impressionable, trying to make good. I've done a lot of difficult things in my life. I graduate, I had, you know, I went to graduate school at MIT. I, know, I can give impressive. this a try. That's <laughs> silly that I had to first do all of those things in order to feel like maybe I can give this a try. <laughs> so that's how it came about. And I really had to make it less scary because I, I am a overachieving personality. So the moment something happens, I always raise the stakes. It's sort of like, okay, you did this now do better next time. So the goal could not be get published or write a book. It had to be very, very small, like make space for writing in your life. Stop pushing that. it aside. Yeah. So that was, and I really... Because it's not like I hadn't tried to write before, but I had tried to follow this advice, which often, which was not good advice for me. And I know it's good advice for a lot of people, but it just didn't fit the way I wrote and it didn't fit my lifestyle. And the advice is, you know, make time every day to write, set yourself a schedule, show up to the page and just sit there and do it. And over time it will happen. And I just felt like a failure because I wasn't able to do that. Yeah, you need to have that time in order to do that. I know. And uh, and I think if I would just tell everybody, there is, if you look at when you write, if you're a writer and you think of yourself as a writer, then clearly at some time you are writing. So rather than try to write like other people are telling you you should to be a good writer, first analyze what are the times, what are the things that happen in your life in which you are actually currently writing? Like, what does that look like for you? And if you find that you are writing when you go to a coffee shop, or if you find that you are writing when you are, you know, that you have ideas when you're in the middle of listening to music or doing chores or whatever else, then like note that because that is when you write. (laughs) So figure, you know, figure yourself out a little bit. And the other piece was what came easy, easily to me was writing 
poetry or ideas for poems, but I didn't really, you know, I had wanted to write short stories or a book, (laughs) which was taking forever because I didn't have the time, but also that isn't what came out of me most easily. So the other advice is just what is it that you're writing? Even if you don't think it's lofty enough or if you, you know, if you don't think highly of it, it doesn't matter. What is it that you are producing and when are you, you know, what are the circumstances that allow you to tap into that creativity and just do those things. So good. So your next book is going to be these words of wisdom for aspiring writers between two <laughs> covers, right? That's what we have to look forward to. No, eventually, I hope, Jane. Thank this you. Eventually. Gold. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was like, this is what I needed to hear. And, and this it, is and what everyone needs to hear. <laughs> I am happy to share. And it, it is so counterintuitive to my little overachieving heart who wants to be an honor student and all of that. Because it's really like, it's so calm and kind and lower the bar and just sit here with your tea, you know, <laughs> like, uh, but my next book is actually a collection of feminist poetry and it's called PowerPoint because, well, for love several that. reasons, I love, I love the pun. I used PowerPoint software, given my business background to make some pointed poetry about power dynamics in our society that um, focus on how the least powerful in our in our society gets you know get mistreated and the deck is sort of stacked against us and using data to demonstrate this point and so the uh, two of the poems that, that you published in the dark issue are actually part of that larger collection that's coming in 2024 from Sheila McGee. I figured that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Point of order was one of my first clues that that might have been part of PowerPoint. Yes. So I'm a sucker for puns. And so a lot of the poems have point in the title as well. Yeah. These are set in a point of inflection, but these pieces just like struck me. And also, if you ever submit four and I only except two, you should know that that's not because I necessarily didn't want to publish all four. It's that I have so many wonderful pieces coming in from so many people that I want to give everyone a place at the table. Yes. And the table's only so big. Yeah, because I have to make hard decisions. I have to like pick my absolute favorite two or three because I cannot let my journal get to be over nine ounces because I won't be able to afford even with the little um which almost but doesn't quite cover shipping because shipping's crazy as you probably know Mm -hmm. it it has to stay at nine ounces so it's about 145 150 pages there are about I've got enough stuff coming in so it could be like 300 pages now of pure gold yes and it's really worth worth the read spoiled but those pieces really um they grab a person by the throat and they don't let you go till you're done and they're a little squirmy and uncomfortable in the Mm -hmm. very best way and i think people need to sit in this exact kind of discomfort and reflect on the situations you portray so well 
Thank you. So poetically in these pieces. I'm so, you know, delighted that it connects. And that's the other pieces that you learn that you're not going to, and it helps to have a marketing background to understand this. You're not writing for everybody, nor do you want to, because it would be exhausting trying to reach everybody. You would lose the sense in trying to appeal to everyone. You would lose whatever it is that was, oh my God, the truth of what you're saying. Totally. And it's so magical when people get what you're saying, because, oh, you found the people, you found who understands you. And then you can concentrate on that community. Yeah. Discovering your tribe. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's the same with Meet for Tea. I don't come from a marketing background, but I certainly have had marketing business headed people talk at me about um, (laughs) things. We're good at that. (laughs) things that I think I should take into consideration, like my target audience and my demographic. I'm like, it's me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Do I genuinely like this? And I will put that with my heart behind it between two covers and put it out. And the people that want to read it, apparently share my opinion and share my taste and the people that don't like it can saw it off. And that's basically, yes, indeed. That's the big marketing plan behind me for D it's like me. Do I like it? Okay, good. End of discussion. <laughs> Target audience, me demographic, me. It would be interesting to see if there are unifying demographic trends as to the there authors. Are. Yeah. Okay. So what are they? I've certainly looked at some numbers, at least um, it looks like people, the the age range is really broad because I've had like high school sophomores up to people in their eighties, like Jane Yolen. I don't know if you, you, are you familiar with her? She's kind of a, she's a BFD. Fucking deal. Um, Jane. Yolen. And I just love that there's a Jane. Oh, yeah. Oh, My middle I'm name is her Jane. Up. Actually. Ooh, wonderful. Jane. I chose Jane. <laughs> I chose Jane because they were going to call me Jenny. That was at the time when they still changed your name. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, I thought Jane was like the most exotic. <sighs> because my name, Jenya, is a very common name. And of course, you know, it's Jane, C. Jane Run, C. Jane. <laughs> It's like the most common name here, but you know, that's what you get when a 10 year old chooses her name. I like Jane. I do too. I think it's solid. I think it's great. And you know, it's velvet underground. Mm-hmm. Sweet Jane. Jane's, yeah. Jane's, yeah. Yeah. Jane's been immortalized. In so Jane Yolen, one of the nice things about coming to this kind of fresh eyed at this time is I don't know who I should be impressed by, by their name alone. And so I get knocked off my feet when I read poems because I don't expect anything just based on the name. And then you're just like, oh my God, this is incredible. Who is this person? And then you chase them. Even if the name holds all the promise of Jane. (laughs) Yes. Well, now I'm going to look for her. Which is considerable. Well, you you don't have to look far. You probably have some of her poems in the dark issues. Matter of fact, I'm certain that you do because she's a frequent contributor. Yeah, you definitely do. I just took a peek. Um, 
she's written over 400 books. Oh, wow. Yeah, here in New England. But even even broader, she's a very big deal. And everything from children's picture books to YA chapter books to um, poetry books to novels. There's one in particular you do like, and I totally screwed up my segue to having you read your point poems. We'll get there. We'll get around. there. Yeah. The tangents are encouraged. I like these conversations to go where they will. But um, Rose Red and Briar Rose, I hope I'm getting that title. I've read it. Oh my God. I love that fairy tale. That to be Based on, but did you read the, the, the novel? Yes. By Jane Yolen. Yes. About the two sisters yes. escaping the hall. That's, that's her. Oh my God. I love her. I see. This is what happens Don't to you? me all the time. I love <laughs> like, her what does she love not knowing? That's, that's amazing. We're friends, actually. She, she calls me Dario, which I very much adore. Mm-hmm. Is she, I, is it like a British thing? No, she's American. She's okay. She, she just does. She does. She summers or, yeah, mostly summers in Scotland. She has mm-hmm. a house there too. But, um, yeah, no, she's beautiful. Writing. Oh my God. That book is, I, I read that book when we had gotten an, a very out of season freak snowstorm. Gosh, 10 years ago, it hit on October 30th and it was so heavy that it just wiped out the power. It's the perfect time to read that kind of book. But it was so cold. It sucked because it was snow and there was no power. So there's no heat. So I I had that book. I'd recently checked out from the library so I could just like be under blankets because it's all you could really do. It's amazing. I did check it out from the library and I ostensibly checked it out for my daughter, but I completely read it myself. (laughs) I'm a sucker for fairy tales. And I love the pictures. The illustrations are beautiful. That's that's one of hers. So you are familiar with this woman. So she is one of the the whole overriding goal with Meat for Tea was to publish emerging artists alongside established to kind of provide a sort of leg up yes. between the pages. So she's one of the established. Yes, so you've indeed. Been published between the same pages as Jane Yolen. I feel very, very lucky. It's kind of awesome. We, we had a really podcast awesome. a while ago. You should. I'm going to hunt that down now. She's charming. She's absolutely. The, that noise was me listing through the. Uh, hunting down her page now. We, we had those conversations in 2020, I think was such a reckoning for everybody. We had this idea of the future we were going to have as a nation and as, as kind of like where we were going. And that completely got turned Dismantled. around. Yeah. 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 Apparently there's hates hates more popular than we thought it was a lot of people like to set their little brains on to that level of the dial and keep them there yeah and i think that, i think the there's, there's this periodic point of inflection we're gonna bring it back we're gonna bring it back oh, it felt cool. like a that. big point of inflection because 
you know, clearly things were not great. Things were, I was under the impression that we were all moving sort of together toward a more equal and just society, but that was not being felt or experienced by a huge portion of the population and the kind of obviously, you know, terrible leadership that we were under wasn't helping anything at the same time. It really exposed the deep divisions, which were there, which were being exploited Oh yeah, heavily. And I, it really made me, especially now, because then after that, my home country of Ukraine was invaded. And oh, yes, which is crazy oh, yeah. enough. And then October 7th happened and the awful Gaza war. And it just feels like the hits keep humming because my ancestral homeland, I'm Jewish. My family is Jewish. I have Arab and Muslim friends. Like the whole situation is so terrible. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you're trying to stay off of social media and not doom scroll, but come on, like with every, the world keeps falling apart at the same time, your home country feels so divided. I had to just come back to the spaces where we could hold dialogue and respect for each other with different views, because yes. that's what's being destroyed is the more we point fingers at the other side and say, you're crazy, you're evil. How can you possibly think this? The more we are feeding the division as opposed to creating opportunities. And obviously art has a huge role to play because of that emotional connection you make. You don't have to name a political identity. You don't have to convince anyone to be on your side. You just have to connect with them on that emotional artistic level. Mm-hmm. And that that act creates a bridge between people, between communities. And that's what we need. We need more bridges. We need more places where we can stay together that are safe, that aren't about proving someone else wrong or blaming a group of people, but more about creating a peaceful opportunity for connection that's genuine. I agree fundamentally mm-hmm. yeah i wonder if there's some people that are just impossible to build that bridge with well yes you can't like go for the low-hanging fruit you know go for the people who already read the poetry <laughs> <laughs> you have to at least start with like a certain level of literacy and rationality right yes because there's some weird fervor out there and i i think that that once people 100 percent that extreme what are you going to do with them other than i don't know my my confession is meat for tea is also and build it this way on purpose but it has become a lovely little rabbit hole of art and poetry in which to descend every quarter to pick what i'm going to publish to look at that exclusively that and that's a a respite I was going to say, does it restore your faith in humanity or does it kind of tear you open? Because so much of the time poets and writers kind of embrace, work through their own inner demons on the page. It rest- I mean, I, I, I guess my faith in humanity is not shaken mm-hmm. anyway. I, I, I've I never haven't had that. It's just that, um, I guess I have an increased level of understanding that stupidity is more prevalent than I had previously thought. Yeah. 
<laughs> Indeed. So. Indeed. And the other piece that clicked for me was that, um, you know, labels, political or whatever labels people put on them is not morality either. And people have no. kind of started to use them that way. And that's a dangerous idea. Well, it's, it's the kind of shorthand that was used in the 30s mm-hmm. and before that in Italy in the 20s and then here in America in the 50s under McCarthyism. So it's a, it's a dangerous kind of shorthand. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, those, those broad sweeping boxes. And that's why I like poems and work that kind of isn't neat, you know, doesn't offer a very neat solution that yeah. has that puts you in a place of un- a little bit of uncomfortable complexity, yes. but in a kind, not overly preachy way, I guess. Yeah. It's have a think about this. Mm-hmm. You're going to feel a little squirmy while you do it, but have a think about this. Yeah. So why don't we have a think about point of order? Yeah, well, so I'm going to give it a little bit of an introduction because it... Please do. So it's part of the PowerPoint collection that's coming from Sheila Nagig in 2024, which deals so with... So excited for this. Um, oh my gosh, me too. We're just starting on uh, the format of the book and that's going to be an exciting thing to do because the format of the poems are not... It's not traditional. I use data analysis as to you know the way you would represent data in an analytical or a thesis kind of academic paper in order to evoke proof because so many times change makers are and and women in particular are dismissed as hysterical and emotional i hate that word hysterical hysterical stop being hysterical Uh, i mean the roots you know hysterectomy yes Indeed. And so these poems are heavily researched and cited. And in point of order or a progressive kind of danger is written as a bulleted list. And every line has a footnote, which then is citations of articles uh, from, you know, Harvard Review, from the CDC, from um, really bulletproof sources that support the statements I'm making. I have a soft spot for this sort of structure. Thank you. Yes. I felt very, very clever, but also I really love it when the structure, I don't go into the structure to start with. It presented itself as I was writing. And I really like it when the structure of the piece adds to the piece in the way that the piece wouldn't have if it was written in any other format. Right. And the name of a progressive kind of danger is I took it from that quote, which is, I don't know if you remember, but it was going around everywhere. This, the hearings for the U.S. Supreme Court confirmation in 2022 Mm -hmm. for Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson. And it was this political theater. Senator Marsha Blackburn made this huge stink about how, you know, please define what a woman is. And they were trying to put her on the spot and she refused. She was grateful. She was graceful under fire 
amazing answer. But here's the quote at the top of the poem. The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education we are hearing about. Right. And then it was very powerful because you had this white woman senator Mm -hmm. grilling this African-American woman judge. And it was just. So it was just a very powerful image for me. Here it is, a point of order, a progressive kind of danger. In North America, a woman is two times more likely than a man to die from a heart attack in an emergency room. 32% more likely to die post-op if her surgeon is a man. 70% less likely than a man to be a surgeon. 20% less paid than a man for the same labor fielding 60 to 75% of unpaid emotional social labor at home, child, elder care, housework, meal planning, etc., and work, committee chairing, volunteering, event management, etc. In the United States, a woman is 35% more likely than a man to live in poverty, holding two-thirds of all student loan debt five times more likely to die during after giving birth than in a comparable country. White. Her first appointment to the United States Senate happened in 1932. Her first appointment to the United States Supreme Court happened in 1981. In the case a woman is Black, her maternal mortality rate is three times as high as a white woman's. Her pay rate is 20% less. Her incarceration rate is two times more. Her first appointment to the United States Senate happened in 1993. Her first appointment to the United States Supreme Court happened in 2022. I I just love that. It's, it's, it's It's a gut punch in the most necessary kind of way. And the the bullet points drive it home further. Yeah, it it's so. Thank you. I, you know, when I wrote it, I kind of shook with it because yeah. it's so packed with emotion and anger and outrage at everything that's happening, and it's housed in these statistics you know, that are on the face of them, just facts gathered together and are not uh, in and of themselves meant to have an emotional hysterical response, but I sure to God hope that that's what happens. Yeah, just a feminine rage. Mm -hmm. Also, I do remember that political theater during Tony Brown's Jackson's hearing and that's a real mythic moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can see that just hopefully played out in art and in history books because just the white and the black and the two women, there's just so much going on there that you underscore so but well. There is, and it just, you know, to say what you want to say without having to spell it out, when that, you know, when that is, when you're able to do that in your writing, it just feels like you're on a different plane. 
so powerful. Do you want to give us a twofer? Okay. Share failure to thrive too, please. Yes. The failure to thrive is a little cheekier. And I have to say there is, um, in all my work, I can't help it. I, I do a little dark humor. And not all the poems are that much of a gut punch in the collection. I do have breathing space because I do not like staying in in, in one uh, emotion too long. And this one... Yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, so this one's going to stay there. It's going to stay there a little bit, but it has a little bit of a, a twist in it as well. So I'm going to... It also has just one uh, citation. And this one citation is about the monkey love experiments. Did you know about these before? I, I certainly did. I certainly yeah. did. I remember reading about them in college yes. with um, a degree of horror. Right. So it was fast. It's in the 1950s. Uh, the, the famous experiments that psychologist Harry Harlow conducted on maternal deprivation in rhesus monkeys were uh, landmarks, not only in primatology, but in evolving science of attachment and loss. This was from the University of Oregon and the citation. And what they did is they had these two versions of robotic monkeys. One was soft and cuddly, but it did not provide any food. And the other one was like mean and spiky, but it gave the food and they wanted to see which one the children would prefer. Failure to thrive, a point of inflection. Dr. Harlow's famous monkey love experiments showed that baby monkeys choose a soft, warm doll over the harpy that delivers food. Only two mother archetypes allowed. It was the 50s. He was a man and wore a lab coat. Permission granted by the science-minded for women folk to love their children hold them even, the tribalistic way that ancient cultures tend a savage, which is the best adjective I know for motherhood and social norms. We have made progress in women's studies since. It is a field all its own, where her history gets buried and repeated. Oh, so good. Thanks. Love it so much. And did you ever read Mary McCarthy's novel, The Women, set in the 30s? It's, it's kind of fascinating. There was also a film made and from it. I think I may have seen the film. It, the, the book is worth reading. It's pretty mm. interesting. But um, in, in the 30s, women were instructed not to pick their babies up when they cried. Yes. And to, to train them to be on your schedule. Mm-hmm. Let right. you have a, a spoiled baby, whatever that means. Yes, it's crazy. And then later on, of course, they show failure to thrive is the idea that babies that aren't held are less likely uh-huh. to survive. Yeah. I, mean, I think you can explain a lot of the way our culture was in the 50s, McCarthyism and all the other ugliness with um, the parenting and mothering that was encouraged in the 30s. And just the you know, blind faith that was placed in science, similar to how, you know, before science was so held in esteem, it was religion and scientists were burned at the stake. So we tend to elevate to a a terrible, too much and put our faith so much into ideas 
and negate our own self intuition of what we feel is right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's fun to poke, you know, (laughs) it is fun to unravel and kind of showcase the craziness and duplicity of these kind of pronouncements because we're still susceptible to it. You know, when we're reading, we're trying reading all these parenting magazines, we're trying to do our best. We're trying to, we feel guilty when we don't do what we're supposed to be doing according to these experts. And then of course these experts are then debunked later. Uh-huh. And usually it's your instincts. I have three children all grown. Oh, wow. You've been through the war. Five grandchildren. Congratulations. But- Oh, thank you. But I I got pregnant with the first one very young. I was 19 when I had him. And I had this naive little bookworm belief that I could just study up on how to do a good job since I was so young. Yeah. And and I my my version of study up was extremely geeky. I was reading Piaget. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I kind of love that. Go in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> deep into the stuff. And then I had him, I'm like, oh, don't let the baby cry. Yeah. It's that simple. Just don't let the baby cry. Make the baby, make the baby comfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not simple. It's not simple. Cause you're like, I'm trying. The baby keeps crying. I don't understand. I'm sleep deprived. I was uh, spoiled. Maybe the universe took mercy on it. <laughs> young girl that I was my firstborn my son John looked like a doll like literally like a chubby doll but um also slept all night long from the day he was born like eight hours that's amazing no you cannot tell this to people that's terrible oh it was so weird he was just so good and so easy I had a woman across the street who babysat from him from time to time and called him the low maintenance baby. She's yeah. Like, he just smiles. He naps. We discovered when he was three, he had a tongue tie. So that did make him quieter. Poor baby. Aww. I know. But I think I, I kept him pretty happy. He was pretty chubby. Yeah. He was it worked out. Bed. That was in San Diego, too. He was born on. There you go. That's all you have to do, people. Just come to San Diego. We're on Raise your children here. Ocean Beach at the time. So I, mm-hmm. I could walk. I could walk to the beach. Fresh air. Well, actually, it was handy because I was, we were poor mm-hmm. and diapers are expensive. So on days when I was low on diapers, I'd just take them to the ocean, let them run around bare bottomed and just swish them off. <laughs> the there you water. go. You should write a parenting book. <laughs> just swish them off in the ocean. <laughs> if your baby is a diaper rash, get rid of the diaper. Let them run around bottomless. It will go away. Yes. Yeah. So funny. All those. Uh, yeah. I just remember reading all that stuff. I'm like, oh, don't let the baby be hungry. Don't let the baby be uncomfortable or bored. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how old are your guys? So I've got two. The oldest is 15 now. And he's actually with his high school friends right now at Don Giovanni. They decided to dress up in top hats and oh my god cool is that? and go to the opera it is so crazy cool and it's, and it's the first i hope he still he, he loved the idea but he's never been to the opera so i'm like i don't know how this is gonna go but 
I think it was more about getting together and doing this as a as a as an outing. He started with a banger, didn't he? Right. Yeah. So he's, Don, he's Don Giovanni. Well, it was either that or Madame Butterfly. And I was like, I think Don Giovanni might be an easier, an easier ask. And then uh, my youngest is 11. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. So you weren't trying to get your poetry out there when they were little, because I was going to say that's no. when, they, when they're, when they're very little, I, I think they all have this thing that I like to call book radar. Mm-hmm. Or if you're sitting to write or study or do something along those lines, they immediately need you for everything. I cannot even imagine. Like, <laughs> I know that I, my, I don't even know how my, I just want to stand up and applaud all the women and do it because it was beyond me. I didn't even consider it. You know, what did happen is uh, Deborah Kwan's poem, The Night You Lose Your Job. Mm is what brought me into as I was kind of exploring, trying my hand at, at writing again, that really connected with me as a mother. And it made me realize that my experience as a mother, I had a lot to share. I had a lot to express and write about. And it was because I think I didn't, I didn't fully articulate that to myself. But when I read that poem and it really was like completely undid me, I was like, no, yes, clearly we have to write. We have to write. We mothers, we must write. It's not just like, oh, should we write? Or is this like, it's like, we must, we have to, because it's such a deep human experience. It's so, it's it's everything that poetry and opera is, you know, it, it has those deep visceral yes. emotions, those truths, it's life and death, like all of this drama that is, taking place at home <laughs> and oh, in your heart. Home. Like it needs and to be out the, there. In the minute mundanities. Yes. And the dailiness of just taking care of business when the business is keeping offspring alive. Yes, absolutely. And so that that is how, and I, as I started to write, a couple of things kind of unlocked and kept coming out. And the first things that kept coming out, which was so bewildering to me, was a lot of my immigrant experience, experience, uh, Mm. which happened when I was 10, 11, which is why I was like, well, you know, I'm in my 40s now. Why is this coming up? And I never really, I mean, I talked about it, but I never really saw it or owned it as a traumatic event in my life, which is interesting I always yeah. packaged it in this whole, well, land of milk and honey opportunity. We were so lucky and grateful. And yes, yes, all of that is true. Also, like <laughs> you, we survived a harrowing experience. We fled as as traitors, our homeland, you know, all of these things kept it's terrifying. Yes. And there were all these things that were kept showing up in my work, which had dealt and unpacked those experiences through the eyes of an older, better informed person that had the language and the ability to express it. And so that that was the the first collection, All the Bad Girls Wear Russian Accents came together out of that. And then PowerPoint, which is the next collection, is the mothering experience, the gender aspect. So it's interesting how that. like I'm impeeling all these layers of 
stuff that's been that's been baking in there. So if you haven't started writing and you're feeling like maybe you're too old or it's too late, no, it's not. Just whenever you start writing, you're just going to unpack all that stuff. <laughs> like Tilly Olson. Hmm. Are you familiar? Um, no, stop you, making me look so ignorant. No, 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 no you don't. <laughs> you don't at all. I, no, I I'm not familiar have, with anybody. I don't have an MBA. Okay. From MIT, and I have very little business acumen. Um, the idea of even keeping a budget, I'm like, what? Then I'd have to have. It's like- not a competition. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, it really isn't. This is a mutual admiration society. Yes, yes, no, but I do. I feel a little bit uh, bad, but also a little, mostly excited that I get to discover all these amazing writers. Well, just, just look up um, her piece, Here I Stand Ironing. I did read that. See, I'm just bad at names. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I have a freakish memory. I, I hope it I hope it serves me. I hope I don't do like Iris Murdoch and go from <laughs> freakish memory to just complete Alzheimer's. Oh, it's, my mom, my mother was like, uh, my mother-in-law was saying, I had low blood pressure all my life until I hit 60. And I was like, oh no, what happened? It flipped. Yeah. It flipped. Yeah. And we'll be back in just a moment. Death by DVD. When watching is never enough. Hi. I'm Harry Scott Sullivan. You may know me from such podcasts as, uh, Death by DVD. We here at Death by DVD sit painfully through hours and hours of movies, so you, the public, can make an informed decision of what you put in your ear holes and eye holes. Some of these films are good, some bad, and some even unmentionable. But all have one thing in common. Watching all of these movies will one day melt our brains into a sloppy wet mush. No need to thank us. We were already methodically destroying ourselves with cinema. At least this way there is a permanent record of our demise. As the midnight hour approaches, the smoke sets heavy and the booze begins to flow like blood. Tune in and drop through hell with your host, Harry Scott Sullivan. That's me, featuring horror artist I. Alexander Nash and more as we take you on a journey through the worlds of horror, gore, cult, strange, slasher, psychotronic, trash, twisted, gornography, weird, driving, cheesy, lost, rare, and frightening films. Join us and listen as life collapses upon itself. Every episode of Death by DVD is available to stream and download directly at www.deathbydvd.com or wherever you find podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Good Pods. Just search for Death by DVD. I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.
And welcome back. You know what I just noticed, which I think is very fun? Mm -hmm. If you go to the pages in the dark issue where your poems first appear, we've got like a point trilogy happening because the piece on 136 right before Failure to Thrive is Turning Point by Alexis Ron Fancher. And I only just noticed, and that was not like me being clever as an editor. They just felt- I totally thought it was you being- Okay, so how do you, okay, this is a great segue. I did wonder this. How do you put together the issue? Oh, fast and random. No, (laughs) (laughs) no, there's thoughtfulness (laughs) happening here. There is thoughtfulness, but I think a certain amount of it happens beneath my consciousness. I'm just, I I read and I build, uh, okay, here's, Here's how it goes. So I read and I just build a content list. Mm-hmm. And I like to to have a good degree of um, visual art accompanying the pieces. And I try to look for some sort of like harmoniousness between the art and the writing pieces that somehow fit each yeah. other, which is, you know, the, the themes kind of force a little bit of that. Although people certainly should never ever approach a theme literally like for Mm -hmm. Lord's sake, especially like my tea themes. Like I do not want, you know, 145 pages focusing on like Ceylon, Mm -hmm. (laughs) obviously. So I'm just building this, this content list. I do not have the skills to sit down and in design and lay it out. My husband does that. He's the graphic designer. So I'm not really visualizing like what page is going to be next to the other. Mm -hmm. So when it's printed and all together, it's a a bit of a surprise for me too. Like I know what, what follows what. Thematically. Yeah. But I'm not visualizing like, oh, I'm going to open the page and there's this Mm -hmm. Alexis Brown Foncher point piece opposing your point piece. Like I and, couldn't have known it would open up that way. So there's a sort of like, I don't know. Magic. Alchemy. Yeah. That happens because I I, I suck at graphic design. So I get to have that. <laughs> if you don't have skill, you get to have magic. Is that yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I was just recently teaching a class in Mesa College for hybrid poetry and I introduced, oh, cool. it was really cool. And I introduced the, uh, one of the data poems, which I used a graphics and PowerPoint to lay it out. And one of the students asked, you know, why this was done this way. And the honest answer was because that's the limit of my skills. <laughs> like I, had to, I would have originally, when I envisioned it in my mind, it looked more polished, but it actually works that way. And you kind of work with what you got. Uh, yeah, no, I th- I think it works beautifully. I think it's awesome. Actually, if, if your students end up with anything good, I'm open for submissions until February 18th. Well, that's right. It was a one-day workshop, but I'll be back to teach in March. How fun. Mm-hmm. Talk about this. So this only came out from being... So the next step, the next step in the writing journey that I looked, I Googled, so besides giving myself the permission to understand what my writing style is like, 
and what works for me, which by the way is I, I get it. So it's to acknowledge that, yes, I write poetry and poetry comes the easiest for me. So I should just write poetry instead of making myself wait until a story comes together. That's one. And the other one is ideas come to me all the time while I'm doing other things. And what I used to do was just like, okay, dismiss them. And what I learned to do was write them down in my note app or on the, if oh, I sweet. yeah so that's what that's really all I did because the pressure then to develop that idea into a poem or a piece it's too, it's too much but it was an easy ask to say okay when a thought comes when you're listening to a podcast and they say something and that line sort of shines for you yeah make, sometimes I mishear what they said and what I misheard was what shined for me which is even better because then I'm not stealing someone else's words but I write that down. And if I don't have time, I just write that down. And I, and then later at some other point where I, I have the time, I'll just go through those notes and see if anything sparks for me. So that was that piece. And the other piece that I Googled how to become a poet, <laughs> I read things. <laughs> and many of them said, connect with your local community. Find out cool. what's happening in your local. And San Diego, I have got to hand it to San Diego, has an amazing poetry community, which is so welcoming and so diverse. Any kind of poet you want to be, there is a specific, there's a place where you can go and meet other poets like that, which I would never have done. But luckily, it was Zoom time, so I didn't have to go anywhere. And just, I could just turn off my camera and be on Zoom and sneak in the back door of these poetry events that were happening, which was very safe and low risk. Yeah. And educational. And highly educational because through that, there's people who you, you whose work you like. There's the, you know You kind of get a sense of which place was the place where you could want to hang out with. And the San Diego Poetry Annual was one of the first places that I found. And so that was really, that was really great. That taught me a lot about connection. And that's how I got this gig through being in the community over time, appearing through readings, being published, meeting other poets. And Carla Cordero is a professor at Mira Mason. And she invited me to do this workshop there. How fun. And you never know how, how that's going to happen, but it's wonderful when it happens sort of naturally, you, you kind of fall in love with people, you make friends the way you do. So in the poetry community and the writing community, what I found is that, you know, when you're in high school or middle school, whatever you show up, you don't know anybody. And then someone like moves over and makes a space for you at lunch. And it may take a while for that to happen, but when it does, or you do that for somebody else, it's sort of like, you know, you're going to be friends. Yes. And I find that that happens in the literary community. You kind of click with people. It just is, or you don't, which is also helpful because then you know where not to go. Uh, and it's it's such a really beautiful, inspirational, supportive thing that happens that way. And then you think of each other, you're like, oh, okay, I have somebody. And so once people know you, they know the kind of work you do. They know the kind of story you have. And if they have an opening in their journal or in, in their class. And they're like, okay, who do I bring in for hybrid? And I just published one of these kooky data poems. They're like, oh yeah. And you want to come and teach? So that's how that happens. 
How lovely. And I love that earlier in your career thinking, well, I'm going to pursue business because I don't want to teach or be a professor. And then (laughs) the other end of the pipeline, here you are with students. I have to say that that being invited, it is organic, but, and I do, you know, being a parent and I do enjoy some aspects of teaching. I just don't like the bureaucracy of it and the politics that I saw in academia while I was in college. I was a college professor for a a long time, English professor. Well, not super long time, but long enough. I actually, my career, you can actually listen to the podcast right before yours and hear all about that. I, I listened. I did. So oh, I have you a, heard about you that. Had, I, heard, I did the evil Dean. I want that to be a story. Actually, I want the story so, to be called what happened to my PhD, kind of like who moved my cheese, but very different. God. Yeah. Well, the PhD is a different story altogether, but um, the, the, the mean Dean while I was very happily teaching very happy students and I had won awards for my teaching and decided that me getting pneumonia was a reason to claim malingering and absenteeism. Oh, good God. Uh, pneumonia and absenteeism are very different issues. <laughs> they are indeed. So the, that was so three things turned me off of, of teaching or academia. And one was the, you know, the kind of thanklessness bureaucracy of the work. So if you were just allowed to teach kids or students, that's delightful, but you have to make lesson plans and grade papers and do all sorts of things, which was not quite as delightful. And I did not like the bureaucratic politicking of working in academia um, that I, I mean, some people thrive in those environments, but I just didn't, I didn't like it. And the third piece was I didn't have a passion as to what I would want to research or study or spend time. Because that's the that's the saving grace. If you're a professor, ostensibly you are working in the field that you're also so passionate about that you're researching and you're using the university's yeah. resources to pursue a course of either a book or a course of study or a lab work or something which make which fulfills you. And I didn't have that piece to make the other pieces that I did not like worthwhile. But now I think, so first of all, I'm invited to write, to do this workshop. I do not have to do any paperwork. I just prepared the lesson that I'm going to give. That is, uh, that is all Carla or whoever inv- is, uh, this is how to do it. <laughs> this is how to do it. Right. Who, whoever the professor is who invites me and I am available <laughs> to do this. I, um, it's their job to do the paperwork. So that's lovely. And it's a short kind of bit. But I'm also talking about something I'm really excited about and I'm really spending my time, my voluntary time working on. So that yeah. is, uh, is a joy. And you're, you're lighting flames in young minds, presumably. I hope so. They're not all young, I have to say, because it's a, in the community college, there's a lot of people who come oh, at, sure. at, at all ages, which is also fun. Yeah, and there are things they see, they see in your work. And through teaching your work, I also found, so I, a lot of my poems lend themselves to being performed, which is kind of fun. And through performing my poems and also through teaching my poems, I have learned a lot about myself as a writer, which helped me write new work better and also understand the way the work connects with people. Because once it's out there, people are going to bring their own lenses and their own experiences 
and to see the, you know, how other people take it in, what they get from it is so eye-opening and interesting. I love that so much. Yeah. So it makes me a little jealous of, of people who get to teach all the time. Yeah. But then, you know, on the flip side, you're avoiding the evil deans. Yes. No evil deans. So that's good. No evil deans. Which it should be an archetype right up there with Wicked Stepmother. It, it's like it got that that grims. Yeah, it, it does. Doesn't it? It's, it's, it's deeply archetypal. So I am wondering if we would be remiss if we didn't hear something from Bad Girls. Maybe the piece that I published in the chat. Yes. Let me get that out. Oh, I have three pieces in this one. Yeah. It's very exciting. They're short. So do you want to go for um, it? Go for the trifecta. I'll go for the trifecta and I will end on the one which is in the collection. But it's fun to read these ones because uh, they're funny. <laughs> they're not they just are. like, they're not dark funny. They're just funny and they have to do because it's so they're cheeky and they have to do with food. So I figured they tickled me. I'm glad. Uh, So I'm going to start with acidic. I'm going to go backwards in backwards order. Acidic aspirations. Champagne and vinegar used to be polar opposites. But now right in my local grocery store, I find champagne vinegar looking luxurious and inviting all at once amongst an entire aisle of salad dressings. The thrill of remembering when poppy seeds seemed exotic overwhelms me. Slowly, I pass through the bottle-lined corridor, bowing over labels of unorthodox combinations. I am seeking an audience with an elusive oil. Will I find it here or in the international section? where it's sometimes summers. Mm. The next one is good for you. All my words are organic. The commas free range. My sentences use only naturally occurring sugars and seasonal periods whenever possible, locally sourced. Devour my homemade paragraphs and grow strong in body, unpolluted in spirit, free of preservatives and artificial flavoring. Graze on grass with me. Let us be minimally processed together. It's too exhausting to be natural alone. I love that. And that actually came from, you know, when you're a parent and you're trying to feed your family in a healthy way and you're like figuring out like, wait, what's pasture raised versus grass fed? That one actually reminds me of one of mine. Mm. Do you have it? I do. Let's read it. Okay. This poem is non-allergenic and gluten-free. This poem has no nuts or seeds. This poem is fat and dairy-free. This poem contains no free radicals, no trans fats, and no artificial colors. This poem contains no high fructose corn syrup. This poem is packaged in a non-denominational gender-inclusive wrapper. (laughs) This poem used fair trade labor. This poem has a low carbon footprint. This poem is done. (laughs) Oh, yes, 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 yes. That's great. (laughs) I 
like that we have companion pieces. When's our food book coming out? (laughs) Let's do it. We should. Yeah. I'm for it. down. I like it. I I think we need more food poetry, snarky food poetry, preferably. (laughs) And more funny poetry. Just something to crack you up. So this one is, is less funny than more, but it is sweet in more ways than one. It is about a, uh, a fruit called miracle fruit It's a colloquial name. It's this little berry and I'm going to mispronounce its scientific name since Pollum Dulce Ficum. I'm so sorry. And it's a hard one. It's a hard one. I'm not good. I I never claimed that I was a scientist. I only uh, make fun of them in my poems. Um, (laughs) It's an evergreen tropical shrub prized for red berries that alter the tongue's ability to taste, turning sour flavors into sweet. And it's used as a natural sweetener in West Africa. And it was previously blocked by the sugar industry from trade. So here's my poem, Miracle Fruit. And it's also part of All the Bad Girls Wear Russian Accents. At the start of everything, before you asked and I said yes, we journeyed to El Yunki, the only rainforest in U.S. territory. On a farm full of guavas and wild roosters, We tasted a red seeded thing that turned all things sweeter. Now that plant grows in our SoCal garden, having overcome the barriers of regulation and climate, it produces red plump berries and memories our children can taste. Isn't all fruit a miracle? Mm, So good. Thanks. And I love that I published a couple that weren't in the collection it, mm-hmm. they just have a home exclusively in the cheek issue That's it totally amazing. and i love so you know often poems are like deep and heavy and serious and it's important important poems but when you go to a poetry reading isn't it great to share something that just makes people laugh and feel human without being complicated yes i, I I, there's a poetry group and I, I won't, I don't want to humiliate anyone. <laughs> I don't know them. I don't know the name. Don't name anybody. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to name them. It's, 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 a, it's a Facebook poetry chat group to which I was invited. Um, and where I have only lurked, mm-hmm. never participated because every single person that group has a ponderous pen <laughs> Ooh, ponderous there's, pen. Just, there's just so much like my ponderous pen sinks into the page while it's like what are you doing <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff that seems to be inspired by like ideas of what poetry ought to be that are based on like maybe longfellow Ooh. <laughs> this is really old, like, you know, it, kind of the dark and stormy night, but. I kind of love that there is this. Poetry. Yes. But it's sort of like when there's a place. For, so poetry has a place for all of it, right? It does. Like, the, <laughs> he does not have a place no. for ponderous pens. <laughs> ponderous pen is fantastic. But I just remember, like, when you're. My first poems that I wrote in high school, right, were so influenced by the poetry we were were being taught, which is, you know, some really great poets and some just, you know, a lot of white male poets. And uh, themselves. 
Yes. And, but you write in that, yeah, that's what being taught. That's what is being shown you as the epitome of work. And if it connects with you, you want to emulate that style. And so a lot of it is love poetry too. So I had these imaginary deep loves to whom I dedicated poetry, which I know is what is a thing that happens. And then I go back, it's so cute. Right. And so at open mics, you, you have people at that come up and they're in that mode, right? They're in that mode and they write those poems that you wrote when you were, you know, in that mode yourself. It's not necessarily an age thing. It's just sort of like being in that place. And so you have that, that love for that place, but you're not in that place anymore. So (laughs) (laughs) your your ponderous pen has been laid to rest. The ponderous pen has been laid to rest. (laughs) Oh my gosh. This has been such a blast. I want to ask you a few questions. The sure. only the only question I don't interview as you probably noticed. We just we, we just ramble. Chat. Yes. I, I like to see where things go and what corners turn up. And I don't know. I don't I don't like to um know the end when I'm starting out on the journey. I like I like it to be a voyage of discovery. Well, it makes it fun. It makes you feel when you're listening, like you're part of a conversation that's sort of organic, but I bet it makes it hard to edit. <laughs> so thank you. My Mark. husband doesn't mind. <laughs> I don't do any of it. I just get to sit here and have fun, which makes me sound immensely spoiled. Perhaps I am. Perhaps I don't know. I that's possible. So the only three questions I ask my guests are... What are you reading these days? Ooh, I I read multiple books at a time. Me too. Yay. As one does. As, as one, one does. does. As one does. And with poetry, it gets even worse because you get to do that without, like you get to do that more easily because once a poem is done, it's done. So you don't have to remember your place in the book. Yeah. I uh, love that. So I'm, I'm reading several books by Ocean uh, Wong. Lovely. He's local to here, you know. I did not know. I heard him. I listened to the On Being podcast and I heard him speak. And that was my introduction. Amazing podcast. Yes. So good. It's so good. Krista Tippett is just, she asks all the questions. I'm like, thank God she's already doing it. I don't have to. (laughs) Uh, the, The world needs to stop whatever they're doing and go listen to Krista Tippett. Yes, absolutely. And he was, she was interviewing him and everything he was saying sounded like poetry, like, like he was reading a poem, except he was just answering her questions. And so I had to find more and I found, and I, and there's, and there is more, this is why the internet is good because you can look them up and there they are and you can see interviews and get access to books and things. So I'm reading uh, on Earth, we're briefly gorgeous, and all the other books too that I got from the library at once. Oh, yay. yes, yay! And so I have to kind of sneak off and get the other books I'm reading because they're right over here, and I'm like, I don't even remember all of them. Hold on a second. Well, the magic of editing, yay! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here we are. Cool. So the other two poetry books I'm reading at the same time is Deborah Bogan's "In Case of Sudden Freefall." Oh. And 
So one of the best advice that I got when I was starting out and trying to get a handle because there's so many journals and so many writers and so, you know, like where do you submit your work is when you find, if you're looking at a journal and you find a journal that you like, who do you like in them? And, and then find out where they've been published, especially earlier in their career and things like that. So Deborah Bogan was somebody I, I don't remember where I found her work, but I kind of fell in love with her work and I followed all the little rabbit holes. And this is the book. I've got to look for her. Deborah Bogan. She's phenomenal. She's a poet and novelist. It's her fourth collection. And she uh, is a national poetry series finalist and winner of the XJ Kennedy Poetry Prize. Wow. Cool. Yes. So she's, she was, this is from Jakar Press, which by this works because all the bad girls uh, where Russian accents made it to the final round to the Jakar Press chapbook competition. And then I pulled it because Kelsey accepted it. So congratulations. Yes. That is really cool. But it really put Jakar on the, it's put two stars by Jakar because clearly a poet I'm in love with is published by them and my book made it to their final round. So there's got to be some kind of similar brainwave happening there. So I'm reading her and Ada Limon came to town a few months back and spoke at a free event community event at a local high school, which was so incredible. And so I bought her book, the hurting kind, and I'm reading that at the same time. And Last, I'm reading The American Effect by Sharon Browse, who's a contemporary rabbi, who's just phenomenal. I heard an interview with her on Ezra Klein, especially in this. I love Ezra Klein, too. Listen to us podcast, sisters. I know. Absolutely. Same cool stuff. It is really cool and really thoughtful. And he's trying to get a handle on yes. what's happening in the Middle East. And, and he's having people of all viewpoints and backgrounds and perspectives. He's and so good. So good. And she, when she spoke with so much heart and so much compassion to the contemporary experience, spiritual experience, and tying in, since she's a, a, a modern rabbi, tying in the Talmud and the Jewish uh, history and liturgy into you know the lessons for how to live our lives in a wholehearted way that is peaceful and kind and you know mm-hmm. is important. is important and helps the community and includes lgbtq and people of different faiths and you know going through peace building and bridge building and things like that so it, it is opening my lifting my heart so yeah, I love those that. are those are the current books. What are you reading? Right. Well, I'm about to dive into reading submissions yes. times a gazillion. Um, I am in a book club. I was in two, which was insanity, but it took me a while <laughs> to realize that. But I just finished um, Shirley Jackson's novella "Hangs a Man." Ooh. Stunning. Oh my God. It is just so, so good. And then to my delight, I discovered that um, Netflix, wait, maybe it was Amazon Prime, 
I get the streaming platforms confused because it seems like they're all just conspiring to build cable 2.0. They are. The ads are coming back. It's very upsetting. <laughs> it's very upsetting. Weird. I didn't pay for those ads. Damn it. <laughs> I don't spend mm-hmm. money to get those. But um, there is a film which is lovely. It's called Shirley. It stars Elizabeth Moss as Shirley Jackson. And it just shows a dramatized, probably slightly fictionalized view of her process of writing the novel Hangs a Man. So I got to have that experience, which I recommend everyone to have. Yes, I'm writing down. I'm taking notes. Oh, so good. And then I just received in the mail um, last week and then this week a couple of packages of books from this poet, um, Jeff Weddle. W-E-D-D-L-E. And I now have nine of his books. Ooh. He was so generous. So I'm about to dive into those. They're mostly poetry, but there's also, wait, I'm going to grab one. Yeah, I'm well and truly spoiled. This is, I get sent books. People are just so lovely. But okay, his titles, Advice for Cannibals. <laughs> wow. How it went to pieces. <laughs> Driving the Lost Highway. Comes wow. to this, which is a President's Book Awards winner. Wow. Broken World. When Giraffes Flew, and the cover illustration is insane. And Citizen Relent, which has a cartoon, among other things. Oh, goodness. That, that word's going to be bleeped out. And then we got it. We got a bleep. <laughs> we did. I provided it. And then um, a nonfiction, thicker book, 200 odd pages, Bohemian New Orleans, the story of the outsider in Lujan Press. Hmm. History of a small but mighty publisher in the vanguard of the small press revolution. So I'm, I'm spoiled rotten. So I have you all are. those. You've got lots of options. And all of them sound fascinating. Aren't those titles? I, I should those are I good should titles. Do, I should do like a golden shovel or I should do something with those titles. Yes. A I poem, should, a title poem. See if you can rearrange them. Book spine poem. Yes. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. I like doing those. It's a lot of fun. So what are you listening to these days? What's on your turntable? If you have such an antiquated device in your home. I do not have a turntable, but we did go to a Japanese style listening bar speakeasy last night for date night with my husband. Oh, fun is that? And there were records there. I cannot tell you what they were, (laughs) but they were delightful and they were played and we got to listen and have exquisite cocktails uh, in Claremont Mesa. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Tell me about these exquisite cocktails. There was a plum highball with extra, what? yes, a plum highball oh. with extra carbonated soda, which I'd never had extra carbonated soda before, but it kind of fizzes, especially if you put ice cubes in it. It's, like, it's very effervescent on the tongue, even more so than regular soda would be. Um, so that was cool. And it, they did all these little detailed things. Like there was the glasses were beautiful and bespoke and the ice cubes had a special design branded into them. 
There was a marinated goji berry garnishing the drink. I mean, it was ridiculous. I I am coming to San Diego. Yes, come back. Claremont is (laughs) happening. We've got to... Claremont used not to be happening. When I was there in the 80s, it was the least happening. It was square. No, it is... It is home to a lot of interesting Asian American fusion kind of businesses that are just incredible. Yeah. Oh my God. How cool. When you're at home, what do you listen to? So I like to listen to the Coachella playlist a lot because we go to Coachella. We started since the pandemic. Wow. And I like um, Stromae. He's, I say Belgium or French. He sings in French. He's just phenomenal. We got to see him yeah. there. It just incredible. Just very worldly, kind of like world music, but also rap and hip hop mixed together in one. So um, I like, I also love to dance. So I like to have it. Me a, too. Oh, what kind of dance do you do? Well, I mean, when I'm out at a club. Club. Just dance, dance, and, dance yeah. but I did formally study, well, first ballet and jazz Ooh. and tap, and then later on belly dance. Yes, I love belly troops. dance, hip hop. I, I, I taught belly dance for a while, actually. I studied formally for a long time. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> so dance is a thing yeah just a thing so dance electronica happens uh when i'm really happy or working out with things like that um i also love to listen to like russian songs when i'm feeling nostalgic mm. we have spotify so especially like around the russian new year uh, the new year which the russians celebrate in like this big crazy way i like to listen to estrada russian um nice yeah it's very like it's got that 70s 80s vibe Cool. Love the, you know, if you've watched them on TV, when the camera would zoom in and do this like close up of the mouth of the singer and fade back, that kind of stuff. Did I answer your question? (laughs) Yeah, you super did. And I go in, um, kind of, as you probably know, if you've listened to a few things, I kind of start off with higher brow and descend. Um, What are you watching these days? So... Uh, my husband and I have just finished the first season of Only Murders in the Building. Don't you love that show? Love it. Oh, my God. I and do. I'm so happy that I discovered it when there's a bunch of seasons already. I love binge watching. We finished the whole thing. Oh, my gosh. It's exactly. so clever. It's so it's fun. Self-referential. like So meta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's been really fun. That's the one I've been watching. But I love I love fantasy, young adult. Actually, so right now I'm reading a bunch of poetry, and it was very I was very proud of myself. But that's because I'm in between young adult books. But I also love that kind of stuff, fairy tale stuff. I love fairy tale stuff that I Me so too. whenever I possible I will watch things like that. I like I like fairy tales from a, a, all different cultures. Mm-hmm. I, I just love tracing the archetypes. You're still looking for the mean dean. <laughs> that and just yeah i mean I, I i just love i wish someone would accurately portray like Grimm's fairy tales in film it'd have to be horror movies 
Yeah, I think they they try every once in a while. And they fail at it. <laughs> like someone, I mean, Terry Gilliam isn't in a shape to do it anymore, but maybe if David Lynch set his hand to it, he could do a decent job. Mm. Needs to be put in the hands of someone better. But only murders in the building. Who are you most impressed with in that series? Whose acting do you love the best? Well, that's so hard. <laughs> well, I have to say Selena Gomez because I haven't seen Me her act too. before. She nails it. She absolutely. I love how like all of them, actually, you you equal measure love and hate them. Right. They play yes. these full, fully fleshed out, imperfect people. I love them all. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't overact. I kind of was worried that she would overact being the first, you know, being who she is as a performer and right? being for the first time. But she just is so brilliant, brilliantly like understated. She's so just deadpan. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Do you covet her outfits and her boots? Those are great. She was, I mean, the, the idea is a little bit like it's that thrift shop, New York vibe. Yeah. But clearly very expensive, actually. (laughs) I also get, that's my secret is it it really is thrift shop, but (laughs) that's the secret. (laughs) There you go. That's what you do. It could pass. Yes. Oh God. And, and Steve Martin's adorable in it. He's so, he's so sweet. He just, yeah. Actually, all of them except Martin Short, who's meant to overplay, because that's his character, they win by underplaying their characters and making them seem so human and everyday when they're such big stars. Yeah. No, it's delightful. I'm excited for you. You've got so many episodes to look forward to because I, I, the season finale is long ago in my rear view mirror of the fourth season. So maybe they'll do another. It felt like they, they tied it up in a pretty good, um, denouement bow. Yes. I'm excited to, uh, so we've just finished the first one and we're going to take a little break, uh, because both of us have some traveling to do and then come back to the season two. So we're going to savor it. It's going to be good. Traveling to do sounds great. Yes, I'm going to AWP next week. I wanted to go. Yes. Fun fact about Meat for Tea. Meat for Tea has never been to AWP. Not once. Is this a cheat? (laughs) Never had the budget. I was going to say, I'm like, is this a conscious choice or just like, we're not swinging? Broke ass Mm -hmm. bitch choice. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, This is my second AWP. Last year, the AWP was a splurge and a love letter to myself and writing in general after years and years of not doing it. And Seattle, I love coffee. Um, But this, but because I I had so much grandchildren there. Oh, so that would have been a good reason. Yeah, the son who, the one I had when I was nineteen, he's he lives there with his his two kids. Yeah. But next year it's in LA. So I don't have, it's less of an expense because I don't have to fly. 
You can drive. I can drive. Yes. And I have friends I can stay with too. So that, that one's a no brainer. Fantastic. No, I almost went this year, but just the budget wasn't quite there. I, I thought I was going to. And then um, we actually ended up needing an oven repair and yes. <laughs> shot the budget. There you so, go. Very mundane. The real life stories of literary journal editors. <laughs> we, we have these concerns. <laughs> Indeed. I wish I could go to all the conferences and things, but this is uh, this is the one. This is the one. <laughs> Yay. I hope you have way too much fun. I, I hope so too. This year is it's less frightening because now I know people and I knew a couple of people last year, but now I really know them and you know enough to like go have drinks and be silly and be at open mics and things like that. So that's yay. Really fun. I can hook you up with a bunch of people I know that are gonna be there. Yes, please do. Want. I would love it. I do want. Yes. I okay. I'll, there'll be an email coming soon. Yay, well, thank I, you. This has been really, really super fun. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Thank you. Thank you for being so generous to new and emerging writers and for so kindly nominating my work for a push card. That was crazy. I was like, what? No. <laughs> it's so worthy. I hope thank the you. push cart committee sits up and takes notice I always wonder what happens to those nominations. I sometimes feel like I'm just like shouting into some sort of a large void, but I still do them. People, I'm so glad you do because they're so meaningful to the to us, right? They're meaningful to us. And we know, we know that there's thousands of them, that it's, you know, it's hard to break through and, and it still really matters. I know there's this whole thing apparently, which is another thing from being an outsider, that apparently it's poo-pooed to like be happy that you got a push card nomination because it's like, oh yes, of course, thank you, you know. But I have no chill. I think it's so cool. I'm like, I'm just grateful that someone wants to publish me, period. I like this enthusiasm. I have a lot of I want to ask you one last little tiny question before yes. we say farewell. Yeah. How did you discover Meat for Tea? I think it was. Were you ever unsubmittable? Yeah. Okay, so it may have I been... I had to stop because they got too expensive. Yes. So it may have been that I was looking through Submittable for... Um, when I was just first researching uh, meat, uh, journals to go to. And when I clicked on Meat for Tea, I really liked that it was cheeky. <laughs> I was like, I like that it was cheeky. And I also... There's a Boston connection. Oh, Yeah. So that was why, that was how. And because <laughs> like Boston, and then just, I just like the irreverence, you know, felt good energy. And I'm so glad I did. And honestly, I had learned to have like a little bit of a thick skin, which, I, which you need to do when you're submitting your work. Oh so God, I, yes. You kind of had to. So I really, I threw it out there, not even thinking, because, you know, it's such a, I, you know, the journal has been around for a long time and I'm just starting out and, you know, they've got these accolades and publish all these great people. So I'm not going to set my heart on it is what I told myself, which was great because then when you accepted, it was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad that you did and that we've had the chance to do this. And I am going to say good night, but I'm going to get my husband to come and make sure this all recorded. Okay. Before we say Goodbye, goodbye officially. Okay. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been so delightful. And I am looking forward to hopefully seeing you in person before next year's AWP. Uh, But if not, at least in LA. All right. All right. That was great, wasn't it? Wasn't that super fun? Mm-hmm. She's wonderful. If you're one of our mini friends that is going to be at AWP, keep a lookout for Jane Mushinets. She's going to be there. Scott Ferry's going to be there. Daniel McGinn's going to be there. Lauren Sharhog, Lil, I don't know if Lil Akov is, but Lauren Sharhog is. A number of the writers we've published are going to be at AWP, so... Sounds like the place to be. Get to know your Meet for Tea fam. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of the Meet for Tea cast. Thanks for sticking around. The Meet for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meet for Tea, the Valley Review. Visit Meet for Tea at www.meetfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meetforteacast at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meetforteacast. We welcome suggestions for contents for the Meet for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meet for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meat for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meat for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth. Meat for Tea on Instagram. And on the Meat for Tea and Meat for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meat for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts.